oh, it's good to be back. You know, the softball ministry is a great blessing to me, but my body's starting to tell me that it's writing checks I can't cash. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's been a great blessing. So today we're going to continue on uh, in our prepared series over the, first, uh, the epistles of First and Second Peter. This is a really cool section today. I love this section. I know I say that all the time, but I do really love this section. Uh, but in this series, we learn how to, uh, we're going to basically learn how to spiritually and successfully uh, live in a hostile world. And believe me, has anybody else noticed the world's getting more and more hostile every day? I mean, just every day. So the theme is kind of twofold. It's uh, God prepared, is, is preparing broken people to help broken people through faith. Uh, and God strengthens those he prepares uh, to endure the suffering we have to endure and to live faithfully. Now, I titled this series Prepared uh, because I, I just pray that his words will make us get inspired to be more prepared. So today's message is Living Stones and the Cornerstone. And this is just an awesome section of scripture. And today we're going to be discussing how to know and act like the people God designed us to be. And to do that, we have to first understand who Jesus is and who we are in him, which I think is a struggle for a lot of believers. Uh, because, you know, embracing those things are foundational uh, in the success of serving him. So let's jump right in. First Peter 2.1. It says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And we're going to stop there. Because Peter starts off chapter 2, his very first verse, by encouraging his readers to put aside worldly attitudes and actions. Because you can't be a representative of God if you're going to be acting like the world. It just doesn't work like that. Now notice all these attitudes and all these actions that are described here are self-serving and they're combative. Okay, and he wants us to put those off. Now, first and foremost, I think it's important that we define what Peter's asking them to do. It's kind of neat. He, he says put aside, and in the Greek, uh, it's the word apotiphami, meaning to stop, cease, or to remove. Now, have you ever heard the old saying, out with the old and in with the new? You guys ever heard that? That's basically uh, what he's saying here. And he's instructing them, just get rid of the old nature, because uh, if people can't tell that you've had a change in your life, how can you encourage them to let Jesus change their lives? So it's really, really important we understand that. See, the word here is also describing, it's kind of the same word they would use when you tell someone to take off an old garment, right? And so basically, in essence, Peter's saying, I want you to take off the garment that makes you look like the world and put on the garment that makes you more like Jesus. I, just, I love this, right? Now notice uh, what Peter wants these people to change is really widely accepted in our time. And when I was preparing this message, I kept thinking, wow, some of these things the world actually tells you to do. They tell you to do these things, right? Because the first thing he said was to put aside all malice. Okay, all malice. Now, in the Greek, that's the word kakia, and it means hateful feelings. Good thing there's no hateful feelings going on in the world today. <laughs> right? Anybody here get on social media? That's a dumb question. I don't even know why I asked that. I got 70-year-olds on social media. You know, no offense, Ben. But, um, you know, when you get on social media, when it first got its start, people were sharing pictures of their kids and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, now it's like fight after fight after fight and argument after argument in politics. And it's just like, man, if there's ever been a time we need to get rid of the hateful feeling, it's now. Because here's the thing. The Bible says that God is love. First John 4, it says God is love. Right? And... And hate and hateful feelings are the total opposite of love, which means it's the total opposite of God. You know, being malicious towards anybody, even if you don't agree with them, is almost willingly opposing everything that God is. So I don't understand why Christians embrace that, because we should be embracing the love that God shares. I mean, so if you want to have a successful ministry for God, you have to get rid of the maliciousness. Isn't it easy to get sucked into it? 
I mean, there's a lot of things going on that are a little bit, you know, controversial right now. You know what I'm saying? And, and instead of Christians holding their ground and trying to show love to people, we're fighting with people. It makes absolutely no sense to me. We're supposed to be the representatives of God. Now, second, he said to put aside all deceit. In the Greek, that's the word dolos, and it means treachery. That means when you're planning to, to harm or cheat or slander someone using deceitfulness. Okay, using deceitfulness. Sounds a lot like the White House. Anyway, uh, the world says, no matter which party's in, too, so don't email me. But, but the world says that we're supposed to look out for number one. How many times did you hear that growing up? You've got to look out for number one. You know, you've got to look out for number one. No, by any means necessary, you have to look out for number one. Even by, by treachery, look out for number one. You might have to step on a few people to climb the ladder. You ever hear that? These are things that they try to teach us are acceptable, but God says we're supposed to forgive people. He says we're supposed to pray for people, even for our enemies. And I'm not going to lie. That's a tough one, right? And there are times when I pray for my enemies, and you've know, you got to be honest with God, and I'll just say, Lord, you told me to pray for them, so like, here I am, praying for them. And um, you figure out how I did my job here. You know <laughs> That's, sometimes it's like that, but God says to pray for them, to forgive them, and to help them, to help anyone. And he's like, you don't have to look out for number one. That's my job. I'll look out for you. You just show my love to other people. Third, he said to put aside all hypocrisy, and this is the Greek uh, hypocrisies, and it means acting. In this context, hypocrisy means acting righteous for personal gain. Now, I'm just going to get the elephant in the room out of the way. There are a lot of hypocrites in Christianity. There's a ton of them. There's no sense denying it. How many people have ever heard people say, well, I'd go to church, but it's full of hypocrites? Anybody ever hear that? I always ask them, do you have any hypocrites at work? Yeah, well, so you quitting? <laughs> you know, any hypocrites at your country club? Yeah, going to quit golfing? You know what I mean? doesn't make any sense. But here's the thing. A lot of believers love the idea of looking righteous. They just don't like the idea of acting righteous. They just don't like that idea too much. They'd rather just look righteous. Because they're more worried about receiving praise themselves than directing praise to God. And that's kind of the way the world is, and especially in the churches anymore. And sadly, if I had to pick one thing that's really damaged Christianity, I'd have to say hypocrisy is probably number one on the list. Probably number one that's damaged Christianity. I could preach on that forever. I better move on. Fourth, he said to put aside all envy. In the Greek, this is pithonos, and it means jealousy. Now, jealousy is one of those things that we've kind of you know, nominalized, we say it's not that big of a deal, but actually jealousy is very, very dangerous because jealousy is the byproduct of discontentment, right? It's a byproduct of discontentment. In other words, it says that what God has given you isn't enough. When you want what someone else has, you're saying what I already have, what God's blessed me with, it's not sufficient. God, you're not doing a good enough job. You know, it blows me away. And then when people see you with that mindset, they might start believing that God can't provide for you. And have you ever noticed that even when you get the things you're jealous of others for having, you still want more? So maybe the problem isn't, you know, what you have. Maybe the problem is what's in here. You know, maybe that's the problem. But anyway, again, i got to move on. Now, fifth, he said to put away slander. Put away slander. And this is the Greek word katalalia. I'll test you on that at the end of church. Uh, and it means evil speech. Put away all evil speech. Pretty much that means don't watch the news, right? That means don't read anything online, but he said to put that evil speech away. And here's the reason why. Our speech reveals what's in here. Okay, now you can pretend to be whatever you want, 
You can try to fool people into thinking you're something you're not. But what you say comes from what is in here. Look what Jesus said here, Matthew 15, 17. He said, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? So there's nothing wrong with things that pass through the mouth. So everybody lay off me for my eating, just so you know. (laughs) Verse 18. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from what? They come from the heart. And those defile the man. Right? So no matter how hard you try, you can't mix oil and water. You just can't mix oil and water. It's it just never going to work. And likewise, you can't mix that worldly attitude and those worldly actions in a spirit-filled life. Those two can't exist together. You know, one, have you ever heard the, the old saying, you know, uh, we're made up of two dogs to describe our two natures, and whichever one you feed is the one that takes over, the one you feed the most? That's basically what he's saying here, right? So oil and, oil and water won't work, and trying to have a, a be godly and allow these attitudes and actions in your life won't work either. Now, one time or another, I'm not that pastor that's self-righteous and said, be like me. I'll be honest with you. I'm going to tell you the opposite. Do not be like me. Because I sin, I make mistakes just like everybody else. I am no better than you. I just have a different job than you for God. Right? I'm not saying that I don't get trapped in these sometimes. Every one of us allows these attitudes and actions to overtake us at one time or another. And if you don't believe that, think back to the election. Right? Just saying. We allow them to overtake us. See, Peter wanted his readers to avoid those, those attitudes and those actions at all costs. To make that a priority. Identify. Pay attention to your life. Do like a self-check. Every day. Is my life the kind of life that reflects God to people? When they think of me, do they think of God? When they think of me, do they think of serving God? Or when they think of me, do they think there's another hypocrite? There's another Christian who says, love Jesus and hate everybody else. You know, you got to ask yourself that. He wanted them to avoid those attitudes and actions at all cost. He didn't want that to be a part of their life, so he's saying remove it from your life. He knew that allowing that in your life will end up eventually destroying you, and that has not changed. I don't know if you've ever had, like, a grudge against somebody or got involved in one of those stupid arguments. Is there really any winning those? I mean, I don't understand that. You know, people get, my dad used to tell me when I was a kid, you want to know how to win an argument? I'm like, yes. He said, stay out of it. I'm like, that's the dumbest advice ever. (laughs) But, you know, actually, it's really true. He said, just stay out of it. Don't get in it. And, you know, when you hold grudges against people, believe it or not, they don't care. The only person that you are punishing is yourself with the bitterness you're harboring in your heart. That's the only person that's actually being punished. When you allow those attitudes and those actions to take root in your life, it will destroy you. You don't get to enjoy the faith that God has given us. You just don't get to enjoy it. You know, I know with the political landscape, there's a lot of bitterness and stuff, but I had to step away. I don't know if any of you had to do this, but I had to just step away and go, you know what? This is just another tactic of the enemy trying to make me miserable. You know, you know does, it, does it matter who's in the White House? Does that change God's promises? No matter Republican, Democrat, whatever, it doesn't change them. Does it matter what rules and laws? They, it doesn't change God's promises. The world can do whatever they want. God is going to keep his word. So I just had to step away. I watch like the, the, the news, uh, the local news, and as soon as the weather's done, I'm off. You know what I mean? And I get out of there. So I mean, it's just one of those things he was talking about. Now, the only way we're going to be able to have the strength to put off those things that Peter was telling them to put off is through God's word. Look what he says here, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. 
He says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, I don't know how you guys roll, but we never fed our infants steak and potatoes. We didn't come home from the hospital as much as I wanted to and give them a slice of Jim's pizza. I ate many slices when I came back. We didn't give them one. They, their stomachs just don't, they, they can't take it. You know what I mean? They don't eat steak and potatoes. They need the nourishment that can only come from their mother's milk. Now, a lot of people say, well, how do you know it was mother's milk? I mean, I don't think formula was a thing yet. So I'm assuming it was mother's milk there. As a matter of fact, formula might not be a thing here much longer anyway. But there again, that's another sermon. Right? So here's the thing. We, babies need that. They need the nourishment that can only come from that. You know, the word babies in the Greek is, is the Greek word brephos, and it means baby, infant, or fetus. Now, the reason I say that is all three of those words describe a very vulnerable phase in our life. Babies are very vulnerable. They need someone to protect them and to look out for them. And like newborn babies, many of his readers were still in the infancy of their faith. These were Jews who had converted to Christianity. Everybody was against them. The Romans were against them. The Jews really hated them because they converted out of Judaism. right? So they were in the infancy of their faith like a baby is in the infancy of human life. And like the mother's milk that babies need and have to have, reading God's word was and is essential in the life of every believer. You just can't grow without it. You cannot grow as a believer without the word of God. I've had people tell me before, you know, I don't read much. But, you know, I got, me, and, me and Jesus are tight. I'm like, I struggle with that. Because that's how God talks to you. If you're not reading, God is not talking to you. I've had people come to me and say, here's what God's telling me to do. I'm like, really, did you read that? No, I just feel it. I'm like, you sure you're getting messages from the right inbox? You know? Because if you're not reading his word, I'm thinking it may not be him talking. And your prayer is how you talk to God. We need that to grow. It is essential for spiritual growth. His readers needed the nourishment that comes from their mother's milk, or that comes from the Word of God, like a baby needs the nourishment that comes from their mother's milk. And it was a really neat illustration, right? And it's still so important today. I'll tell you what, if I could give you one piece of advice on how to handle the craziness that's going on in the world, I wake up every day thinking to myself, what nutty thing am I going to hear next? Anybody else think that? Sometimes, I, you know, I'll skim by the news and I'll try to break my policy. Let me watch it for a little bit. 30 seconds. Nope, let's go to something else. You know what I mean? Because I don't know what nutty thing I'm going to hear next. But people always say, well, how do we have peace in this? How do we have confidence in this? Read the Word of God. Read the Word of God. You'd be shocked how it speaks to you. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you ever opened the Word of God just randomly and what the first thing you start to read is talking to your life situation, whether you like it or not? That's happened to me so many times. I tell you guys this all the time, and maybe I'm angry too much. But whenever I'm mad at somebody, I swear I always open it up to a forgiveness scripture. Every time. And I'm like, yeah, wrong page. Try to change it. And I flip the book to another random area, and it's talking about if you don't forgive, you can't be forgiven. I'm like, man, I just got the wrong mailbox here. Because everything I'm reading is telling me to do what I don't want to do. We need the Word of God. We need it. It's how we survive the world. It's how we survive everything that's going on around us. It's just crazy. And that's why the enemy is always trying to persuade us to not read. He's always telling us that, well, you don't have time to read. And I, don't ever use that excuse with me. I'm sorry. 
I won't even accept it from myself. Okay, because when you can tell me you didn't look at anything but the calls that came in on your phone, then you can tell me you didn't have time. When you can tell me the TV was never on and you were never watching it, then you can tell me you never had time. Right? There is always time if you make it. But the enemy is trying to tell us we don't have time. You ever had the enemy tell you this? I can't understand it anyway. You know, I had a guy one time, he came to me with a King James. Now, if you're a King James only person, you're wrong, but, you know, whatever. But here's the thing. He came to me and he couldn't understand it. I said, well, there's so many translations out there that are translated to where anybody can understand them. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, the, you know, like the, the New Living Translation is translated to an eighth grade reading comprehension level. And I love that one. He goes, why can't you read higher in eighth grade? <laughs> I'm like, I don't think we're getting anywhere here. I'm like, I just like it because it's, I don't have to think much. It's very common. There's no reason the enemy's just trying to trick you into being content and growing closer to God, and that's exactly what happens. Sometimes he even tries to convince us to question its authority or authenticity. You ever hear Christians say, yeah, but that was back then? You ever hear him say that? Like God sees the future and goes, wow, I did not see that coming. I should have probably wrote about that in retrospect. You know, that's not the way it works. Yes, there are some cultural things in there, but when it's something that applies just to that culture, he does this crazy thing. He tells you that if it just applies to that culture. We have to get in the habit of reading the Word of God because those excuses are just tactics that that a desperate enemy is using to try to keep you from getting close to God. That's all it is. Now, Peter's next words were again reminding his readers who he was talking to. He said, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, so he told him these things to do, and he said, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, I've had people tell me before, well, how do you know that means they're believers? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because, well, let's break this down piece by piece. The Greek word for tasted is giwomai, and it means to have experienced. It means to have experienced. Experienced what? It says the kindness, which is Christos, meaning the graciousness of the Lord. So he's talking to people who have experienced God's grace. I think that's us. What do you think? You know, that's exactly who he was talking to here. The psalmist used the word taste to describe her personal relationship with God. Look at this, Psalm 34, starting verse 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Right? So Peter wanted to clarify once again before he talked who he was talking to. He wanted everybody to know I'm about to give you an important perspective, and yes, I'm talking to you. And here's where it gets really, really cool. In verses 4 through 8, he's going to use some of the most powerful imagery in the Bible. Some of the most powerful, because he's going to use imagery about Solomon's temple to explain God's plan to these mainly Jews he's writing to. Because most of them, or pretty much all of them, understood Solomon's temple, how it was built, why it was built, the, the, you know, all the reasons God had for building it and how they were supposed to use it. So all the references you're about to hear about stones and cornerstones and things like that were images that they would perceive as the process of building Solomon's temple. Okay, this is the way they would perceive that. And I'll explain each piece of imagery as we come to them in this message. But once you understand this imagery, you're going to understand why it's both powerful and a beautiful way to describe God's plan. And you know what I always think when I read this? Like I said, one of the most powerful and beautiful sections of scripture that explains God's plan, and it's written by a man who was poorly educated. It almost seems like, you know, God used him or something. Pretty cool. So let's, 
Let's move into this. And now in verse 4, he, the first thing he refers to, notice this, he refers to someone as him, and he refers to him as a living stone. So let's see who him is. 1 Peter 2, 4. It says, and coming to him as to a what? A living stone. Remember that, singular, a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now the living stone he mentioned has two specific characteristics that reveal who he's talking about, and who he's talking about is Jesus. And there's two very specific characteristics here. He said that this living stone had been rejected by men. It had been rejected by men, and he said that this living stone is choice and precious in the sight of God. Those two characteristics tell us it's Jesus, because Jesus was rejected by his own countrymen, the Jews. He was rejected by the Romans, and even Peter himself at one point denied him. This is talking about Jesus, and also... I mean, when it says that he is, choi- uh, he is choice and precious in the sight of God, I couldn't even list all the scriptures that it talks about the precious blood of Jesus, how precious Jesus is to us, right? So we know that this is talking about Jesus. Now let's move on. The living stones he's about to mention are identified pretty simply. This is, this is believers. This is who he's talking about. 1 Peter 2.5. You also, which would be his audience, correct? We've, we've determined those are believers. As living stones are being built up. Remember the illustration of Solomon's temple? Now he's using these stones to build something. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we know this letter was written to believers, so we know that this is talking when he says, you also, as living stones, he knows that's talking about believers. Now Solomon's temple was built as a place to honor God in a place that you could go to worship God. That's why it was built. And it was thought that the Spirit of God was dwelling in Solomon's temple, and that's where you had to go to, you know, communicate with the Spirit of God. That's where you had to go to to worship God, right? It was just assumed that the Spirit of God was there. When you wanted to make sacrifices, when you wanted to make offerings, you had to go there because that's where the Spirit of God was housed to them. Right? But since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have no need for a man-made temple anymore to get in contact with God. We don't need it anymore. That's why it drives me crazy. You know, we're starting a building project right now, and I'm not going to lie, it's driving me nuts. Because this might shock you, but apart from the Bible and sports, I'm not a big detail guy. You know? And we're having all these meetings, and one of the things that cracks me up is people always want to put, like, let's put this thing at this statue in the front yard it only costs seventy thousand dollars i'm going what we don't need the building to find jesus it's just a place we can go you know what i mean why that seventy thousand could feed people could give people the word of god right so since jesus came died and rose again we don't need that man-made temple anymore because we are now the temple because remember the temple housed the spirit of god well guess where the spirit of god is housed now in us The moment you believe the Holy Spirit moves in us, the Spirit of God is in each and every one of us, just like is in Solomon's temple. And as such, we should honor God with our works, we should honor Him with our words, we should honor Him with our actions, because we are supposed to be honoring God like Solomon's temple honored God. I think that's really, really important. So maybe we should abandon all the social media arguments. Maybe we should do that. I know you guys say, why are you always picking on it? Because it drives me crazy. That's why. You know what I mean? Maybe we should abandon all the political rhetoric. Maybe we should abandon all the arguments 
And maybe we should just focus on being loving temples that display the Spirit of God that's inside us. I don't want people to know me as a Republican. I don't want them to know me as a Democrat. I want them to know me as a child of God, a temple where Jesus lives. That's what I want to be known for. So I think this is really, really, really important. If you want to be passionate about something, don't make it politics. Make, be passionate about Jesus. That pays off. The rest does not. Now, during the construction of the temple, if you go back and study, they found this large stone, and originally they said, eh, it won't work. It's not going to work. So originally, they rejected this large stone, right? But later on, they found out that, wait, 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 remember that stone we cast out? Turns out, it was perfect to be the cornerstone of, the, of Solomon's temple. It didn't even need to be cut or hewn or shaped. He's like, wait, if this is the shape of the building, hold on, don't, you don't have to make one. We found one. We actually rejected it earlier. We thought it was useless, but come to find out, that stone that we rejected is exactly what we need to hold up the house of God. Do you see where they're going with this? The stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. We're going to get to that here in a minute. It's really, really important, right? So the thing that was once disregarded, considered worthless, now has become the most perfect necessity to build the house of God. See, to build something as special and important as a temple, perfection is exactly what they needed. Everything had to fit perfectly. It was necessary. Now, we'll look more at that as we move on. So again, as the living stones, and the living stone, which you know is Jesus, we are, they, Peter was talking about still building something special. He's like, it didn't end when we built that. Look at this, 1 Peter 2, 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him, capital H, who are we talking about? Give me the Sunday school answer loud. Who are we talking about? Jesus. Jesus. There you go. And he who believes in him, what? Lord have mercy. There's coffee out there. It's free. It's not foo-foo, but it's free. Let's try that again. He will what? Not be disappointed. Good enough for the early crowd, I guess. All right. Very, very important, right? So the entire building or structure rests on the strength and shape of a cornerstone. So if that cornerstone is weak or has a crack in it, they can't use it because the whole building could collapse once all the weight is on that cornerstone. So imagine how disappointing it would be to be one of the builders of a huge structure, and four years after you built it, and it may have taken 10 years to build, you realize you used the wrong cornerstone and it comes crumbling down. Okay, imagine how disappointing that would be if it collapsed. Imagine that disappointment. So only through carefully selecting the perfect foundational stone would they guarantee success. I love this comparison. So also, the only way you can have a relationship with God is through Jesus. That's it. The only way. You can try anything else you want. It won't work. You are building a spiritual house that will collapse because its foundation is not the cornerstone, which is Jesus. It will not work. If you want to have a spiritual relationship, it has to be through Jesus. And people always tell me, well, that's so exclusive. No, it's really inclusive. Because that Jesus accepts anybody who believes. Anybody. So it's not exclusive. So also, the only way, I mean, the only way you're ever going to have peace is if that peace is founded in Jesus. 
He's the cornerstone of peace, of love, of absolutely everything. And if you remove Jesus from anything, it collapses. And I'm talking about if you remove it from the schools, you're going to have destruction. Remove it from the government, you're going to have destruction. And if you take it out of a nation, say goodbye to that nation. And people always say, oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, there was a greater, there was a greater government than ours that lasted 200 years until they ran from God. And it's called Rome. And it burned to the ground. Listen, you have to have Jesus as your cornerstone if you want it to work. If Jesus isn't the cornerstone of your relationships. You know, I don't understand how, being married is tough. If you're here and not married, let me explain something to you. It's not like on TV. Now, you can find the right person and you love them. But there are times you will want to suffocate them with a pillow in their sleep. (laughs) Not me, of course. But I've heard of people that do. There are times that Jenny will look at me and I know she's thinking, what was I thinking? And then there's times she realizes she won the man lotto. It just depends. But marriage is tough. And I can't tell you how many times what saved our marriage was we both were standing on that cornerstone. And when we didn't have the answers, we knew he did. And there were times we'd stop the argument and say, let's pray about it. Because the one thing that would settle our arguments is no matter what I thought or what she thinks, what Jesus thinks is what matters. And that's where we found our peace. He has to be the cornerstone. Now, there's a lot of political debates and and bantering and rhetoric out there right now, but I'm not worried. And I've had a lot of Christian people saying, "You you think it's the end of time? Don't know. Don't care. They say, aren't you worried? No, I'm, I'm really not worried. And the reason I'm not worried is I just make sure that all my beliefs and everything I'm passionate about is founded on God's word so that Jesus is my cornerstone, not politics. The government is not who I depend on for my daily life. I depend on Jesus. And because those things, because Jesus is my foundation, I know that those who stand on that foundation can't fail. And that's why I have peace in a situation like this. So, I mean... Believe what you want about government and the world's propaganda, but my hope is in Jesus, and my home is not here. I'm looking forward to the time when I am done with this trip, aren't you? I'm excited about that. I, I found, I, this sounds terrible. I'm going to share it. I don't know why, because I don't have any filters, but this is no joke. Someone was talking to me about the end of time, and they were kind of spooked, and they said, well, what, what if Jesus came today, and it just blurted out? I said, gosh, I wish he would. And they're like looking at me horrified, and I'm like, well, I mean, after you believe. You know, <laughs> how do you come back from that? But realistically, I don't know about you guys, but aren't you excited about that? You ever hear a big crack of thunder and think, let's get the bags packed, we're out of here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Jump in the truck, kids. We're going home with Jesus. I'm, I'm just excited about that. I better shut up and move on. Okay, First Peter 2, 7 and 8. It says, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which... The builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now I think this is a powerful, powerful section of scripture because now that we've determined Jesus is the cornerstone, you have two choices. You can choose to make that the cornerstone of everything you are and everything you'll ever do. And you'll never have to fear collapse. Or you can choose to reject that cornerstone 
and stand on the cornerstone of the world, and you will experience collapse. Listen, I know that sounds harsh, but it, it's true. You know, those who choose the former, you know, Jesus being the cornerstone, you can depend that he's going to keep his promises even when the world is losing its mind. Jesus hasn't changed. That's something that gives me strength. You know, he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. And he always keeps every promise he ever made. And someday he promised to take us out of here. And I can't get going on that again. But I'm telling you one thing. I'm looking forward to it. Someday he promises that he's going to take us to a place where there are no politics. Where there is no sick. There is no death. Where there is no betrayal. And I'm looking forward to that. You know? But those who choose the latter who have to depend on the promises of the world. And the cornerstone they rejected will be the place they will stand for judgment. Because listen, people always say, what kind of a loving God would put people in hell? I don't think you understand the process. Hell was not designed for us at all. It was designed for the fallen angels. And imagine if you said, listen, well, okay, you don't have to worry about that place. I mean, unless you're just going to reject the free gift of salvation. It's like me pulling up beside you and you're struggling to swim and I go, you know, here's a, here's a, here's a life jacket. And they go, no. I'm serious, dude, you better take that life jacket. You're looking pretty rough there. No, I got this. Dude, you're, you're sinking. Take the life jacket. I don't want the life jacket. All they had to do was believe my promise enough to grab it and their life would be saved. When I get back to shore, if they drown, can you really look at me and say, you drown them? You can't, can you? Jesus said, all you have to do is believe that what he did was enough and you'll have eternal life. Right? I mean, that's the simple, you don't have to change. He'll change you. You don't have to be any certain religion. Religions that teach you that are what we call liars. It's not about denomination. It's not about age or gender or anything. It's not about any of that. Can you believe this? There's more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than some of the people we study in history existed. Right? He's saying, all they got to do is believe this, and yet people refuse. So God doesn't put anybody in hell. They just refuse to be saved. You know, and maybe that's the church's fault. But all I'm saying is, if there's one thing you take from this message today, I want to be a part of the spiritual household, not a part of the spiritual collapse. That's what I want. I want you to be a part of the spiritual household the thing that gives glory to God, the, play, the, the thing that brings people to God, that introduces them to Him. That's what I want you to be a part of with me. I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask if you would please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. We don't do that thing where you ask people to come up front because I just don't like that. What I do is I just want to pray for you. If you're here and you're not sure where you stand or, or, or you're struggling, you just want me to pray for you. Listen, God knows the details. I don't need to. He's the one with the power. Just make eye contact with me. Put your head down, and I will pray for you. Bless those people. And I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to chase you down after church. You could probably outrun me anyway. Bless those people. Bless those people. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. I'm praying for you too. I say this every week, but I'm, all, I'm always praying for believers. We're a sizable army if we stop refusing to fight. And so I just pray that when we read things like this, and realize that we are part of something bigger that's continuing to build stronger and stronger, whether we believe it or not, it should impassion us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness and especially your grace. 
I can't understand why you would come and die for me. You know me. You know the me that I share with no one else. You know that I sin. You know that I'm imperfect, that I mess things up all the time. But you love me anyway. And you gave me a way to have eternal life even though I could never be good enough. That kind of grace is beyond me, but I'm so thankful it exists. So if there's someone here or listening or watching and doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, God, just remove it. Remind them that you want them to come just as they are because you died for them just as they are. And if they will believe that what you did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word promises they'll have it. And if they make that decision, I pray they let us know because we would love to walk in their faith journey with them. But God, for those of us who are believers, help us to embrace our position as living stones, a part of a temple that can share the spirit of Christ that's mobile. Let us be the representatives that when people see us and hear us, they see and hear you. We believe the time is short, God, and, and while we have time, let us display your love and not get distracted and pulled aside by all the rhetoric. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We pray that you go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.